Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620 This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your host with the most, Tiny Tim. What's cracking, Podcastville? Today I'm pretty excited about Leah Plunkett and her conversation about why we should be cautious with our kids' data from Town Hall Seattle, March 10th. Hey, additional support for this show comes from Shift Bainbridge, Sound Reaper Graphics, BI Hoops, and more. Without further ado, here's Leah Plunkett. Enjoy. Thank you so much. It is wonderful to be here. This is a gorgeous building, and we're going to have a wonderful conversation. I wrote this book not as a how to fix all the things book or how to even do all the things better, but from a place of confusion and compassion. I am a mom of two kids in addition to everything else in my intro, and I was trying to figure out for myself how I felt about looking at a Facebook news feed that had a lot of really adorable kids. And I was putting my, I think, also adorable kids on there. And it just started to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And with that feeling grew a research project. The New York Times had an article this fall. The headline was, How Photos of Your Kids Are Powering Surveillance Technology. And in that article, the Times asked, who could have possibly predicted that a snapshot of a toddler in 2005 would contribute a decade and a half later to the development of bleeding-edge surveillance technology? And my answer is that Sharon Hood could have, I think, had I written it in 2005. And what I'd like to do tonight is make some predictions Um, But before I do that, I am going to talk a little bit about the path and the principles. And by, you know, I'm a law professor, so by principles, I mean legal principles, but then just also the way we operate in daily life. I'm going to talk a little bit about what has gotten us to the point that I think we're at of speculating on what the next level of photos of your kids on social media powering the training of bleeding edge surveillance technology looks like. And my remarks will look at parents and other adults, but mostly parents. They will look at the power of play. They will make some predictions, and then they'll talk about a path forward that I hope can chart a slightly different course. And the four things I 
would like to focus on on are how parents pose an underappreciated risk to kids' privacy, as well as kids' current and future life opportunities, how childhood and adolescence as protected spaces to play are being threatened, and how that threatens kids' ability to grow up into the people they're meant to become. I'd like to talk about how kids growing up today are already subject to and at risk of far greater data-driven predictions being made about them and their capacities for success in life, including in education and employment. And then I'd like to look at a path forward where we reorient ourselves a bit in a values-based, commonsensical way that I'm not going to pitch to solving all of our problems, but I am going to pitch as an accessible starting point. So parents, of which I am one. And in this broad category, I will say that parents are not the only adults engaged in sharenting. Sharenting, as I've defined it, refers to all of the ways that parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and other trusted adults engage in digital activities with children's private information. How many of you have heard the term sharenting used other than tonight? Yeah. The New York Times is using it a lot in their privacy project, and I'm starting to see it more. My definition is a little bit different. The definition of sharenting that I've sort of seen in the increasingly robust popular discussion about it is what parents do on social media. And while I think that's a big part of sharenting, it's actually not the only things that we do. But when we as parents get into our default everyday mode of having the Alexa in the house or having a Nest Cam or a smart fridge or giving our kids an iPad or taking pictures of our kids and putting them on social media, we are well-intentioned. At worst, our default setting might be a little bit careless. And by the way, when I say we, I'm including myself in this. So we're all in this together. But the laws in the U.S. give us as parents supercharged constitutional level protections around whether, when, with whom, how, and why to have and to raise our kids. And in the digital era, sharenting is part of how we are raising our kids. The U.S. Supreme Court has said that the child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right, coupled with the high duty, to prepare him for additional obligations. That's Pierce versus Society of Sisters about 100 years ago. So particularly for parents, and it's pretty similar for grandparents, aunts, uncles, and other family members, educators, coaches, and other professionals are a little bit different. We'll talk more about them. But when it comes to parents in particular, up to the boundaries imposed by criminal law or laws of freestanding applicability, you get to make your own choices about sharenting. And when I say freestanding applicability, I mean you can't violate a provision of law that exists separate from sharenting and then say, oh, I'm a parent, I was just sharenting, I shouldn't be in legal trouble. To make that concrete, there are YouTube families. There is a particularly well-known one called Daddy05. The Washington Post profiled them pretty thoroughly a few years ago. And Daddy05 was a self-proclaimed family prank channel. And the parents would play what they called jokes on the kids. And in one particularly disturbing joke sequence, they parents dumped disappearing ink in the bedroom of their son, Cody. It's like eight or nine. And then they started screaming for Cody to come upstairs. And look what you've done. You've made such a mess. This is so terrible. You're going to be in such big trouble. And Cody is screaming and crying. And he looks terrified. I mean, he looks really like viscerally terrified. And he gets up to his bedroom and they're saying, you know, there's, it's a mess all over the floor. You made this mess. Why did you do this? And he's screaming, I didn't do it. I didn't do it because he didn't do it. And then the ink disappears. And they say, oh, it's just a prank, bro. And at that point, he really becomes, you know, overwhelmed. And he's screaming and he's crying because 
he was so scared and now he's so angry and there's nothing he can do about it. And so this family had over half a million YouTube followers putting content like this online. And eventually what happened is some of the followers contacted local child protective services and said, this looks an awful lot like abuse and neglect. And child protective services agreed and investigated the family. Uh, the parents temporarily lost custody of Cody and one other child. They pulled the YouTube channel down. So that's an example of sharenting that reached the limits of what the law allows. But what's important to keep in mind is that the legal violation here wasn't that they were putting it on the internet. It's that they were engaging in behavior that constitutes abuse or neglect, whether or not you film it. There isn't a law that is going to step in and regulate at the federal or state level what parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles or other family members and close friends choose to put online about their kids. The limits that exist are from things like you can't manufacture child pornography. You can't abuse and neglect your children. You can't assault your children. But those are not privacy-specific laws. Those are really outer boundaries of what parents can do. And when you think about a lot of the sharenting that happens, of course, it's nowhere near those limits. So just think about the course of a day. You know, we take a picture of our child and text it to our spouse. That's sharenting. It's not as public a form of sharenting as putting something on YouTube or even on a social media page, but it's still digitally transmitting some intimate information about your child. Now, hopefully you can rest assured that your spouse will just enjoy the picture and that no one's going to hack into the phone and take a screenshot of the picture and repurpose it and do something with it that Pretty unlikely in that scenario, but that's still sharenting. Giving your child a fitness tracker that lets you know how many steps that child is taking, if that's digitally connected, which it probably is, that's sharenting. You are choosing as a parent to let a digital device that is provided to you by a tech company and whatever third parties are helping them support that device and whatever third parties they might be sharing information from that device with, that sharenting. It's not putting it on the internet, but it's still digital transmission of private information about your child, their location, their fitness, their whereabouts. When you choose to use a smart diaper on your infant, that is real. Uh, it is a sensor-based diaper, lets you know when it's time for a change. Um, that is still sharenting. That is digital acquisition of, in this case, really intimate information um, that is being shared with the provider of the smart diaper. I know Pampers has one. I don't know if Huggies does as well, but but Pampers does. That's sharenting. When you are using a digital baby monitor, sharenting. When you are inviting an Alexa in and they now have an Alexa that is sort of tailored for kids so that you can read to your child, Sharenting. You give your child a smart teddy bear. Sharenting. And that doesn't happen just in our homes. It happens when our children are at a friend's house and the parents there take a picture and put it on social media. It happens when your child goes to school and is given an app to teach them reading or when the school in the back office is using a software program to track discipline or attendance. Sharenting, sharenting, and more sharenting. Your kids go to summer camp, and the summer camp is using a new program that has facial recognition technology built in so that pictures that the camp takes during the day can be tagged with your child's name and texted to you. That's sharenting. And the examples do go on and on and on, and I'm not going to spend you know my entire half an hour going through them because... Um, that would leave us no time to talk about anything else. And, you know, one of the wonderful things about digital technology, it's ever-changing. So even in the period of time from when the publishers at MIT Press told me I had to stop writing um, and when the book actually went to print, I've started keeping a running list of things that 
you know, happened in between the time that I've had to finish this and even when it went to print. The smart diaper happened during that time. The Stitch Fix clothing service that is now focused on kids came out during that time. And again, that's still sharenting. That's a digitally based service that is using a combination of humans and algorithms to make predictions about the clothing that your child will find acceptable, and they will then send it to you, and you can either keep the clothing or not. That's sharenting. And again, the the list goes on and on. And so the legal framework that is in place when a parent or a grandparent, or an aunt, or an uncle, or a family friend is putting a product in their home, or uploading a picture onto Facebook, it is the notice and consent legal framework. At some point in there, you as the parent or grandparent are going to be clicking, I accept, or swiping on something to show your agreement. And of course, that's not really particularly meaningful consent. First of all, good luck finding all of the terms of use and privacy policies for any product, especially the smart products. So you're unlikely, if you do get your child a fitness tracking watch, let's say, to see a privacy label directly on the watch. We don't see them on our phones. We don't see them on our tablets. We don't have a nutrition label style user-friendly guide to, hey, caution, this device is taking these five categories of information and sharing it with this list of 50 providers. So if you really care to even try to figure out the privacy policies in terms of use, in terms of service. You're likely looking for a paper insert with really small print in the package, or you are going to a website with lots of small print. Good luck reading through all of that, and I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I'm a law professor nerd and a mom. I do not read all of those for all of the products I use in my home, or I would not have time to write books and do other things like eat dinner. But when you do then go through and try to read all of them, which I do do, mostly in a research capacity, inevitably you find language that's broad enough you could drive a truck through it. So we won't share any of your information except to improve the user experience, except for product development, except as needed for the third parties that work with us to provide services for you. So even if you get all the way through there, it is still really, really hard from the consumer side to have a sense of what information is being collected about your child and where it's really going. And of course, the idea of parents having this kind of decision-making authority for their children's privacy made a lot more sense in the brick-and-mortar era because you could just close the door if you didn't want someone coming in. You could pull the blinds if you didn't want the neighbors looking. But now as parents, we have all of these devices on our bodies, in our homes, in our bedrooms, in our children's bedrooms, all the time that present to us by design as if they're just part of our houses or part of our schools and that they belong on the inside. And we've fail to remember, and again, I'm including myself in this, that anything that is digitally connected is tied to the outside as well. And because of that sort of design feature where it's designed to make us think, oh, that's just the laptop on the desk or the phone in the hand or the smart teddy bear that my child's cuddling with, we as parents don't see just how much is being picked up and how much is being transmitted and where it can go. And some of the places it can go are scary. This is by no means, you know, the norm um, in terms of an experience of using a digital device, but sharenting provides information for potential identity thieves. When you combine specific identifying information about someone's full name or their place of birth, their date of birth, and you combine that either with a real social security number, many of which are out there following you know, massive data breaches from institutions that would have them. You combine it with sharented information, or you generate a fake social security number, combine it with sharented information. Your children's identities are a 
ripe source of um, potential conquest for identity thieves because they don't have many, if any, legitimate reasons to have credit tied to them. And it's gotten to the point where there's some law enforcement agencies, the Utah Attorney General's office comes to mind, that actually have separate divisions or bureaus to focus on children's identity protection because they're such a target. If you are putting pictures of your child online, those pictures can be taken and repurposed and made into abusive images. We also know, sadly, that many children who are survivors of abuse in real life know the abuser. It's someone in a broader social network. And so putting information out about your child's whereabouts or their likes or their dislikes, that is information that can be used in really scary ways. Again, I'm not saying this is the norm. I'm not saying that any child who has a you know fitness tracker on that also tracks location is going to have that device hacked or anything like that. But those are the kinds of things that can happen in that realm of criminal, illegal, or otherwise dangerous. And It is also true that even well short of those kinds of harms, we can have harms that are legal but a little invasive and suspect, as well as harms that attach more to a child's sense of self or reputation or their relationships with other people. So I've talked a little bit about parents and why we're really just not in the position that we were in the pre-digital era to make informed judgments about how best to protect our children's privacy. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about play and the importance of having spaces for our kids and teenagers that are experimental and iterative and inclusive and equitable. The United States legal system has a fairly recent, in the grand scheme of things, tradition. I say fairly recent because, you know, pre the late 19th century, this was not so much the case. But in in recent history, we have a tradition of treating minors as deserving of heightened protections. So in our country, children can't contract except for necessities. Children, if they get into trouble with the justice system— are, unless it's really serious and they're tried as an adult, they are not prosecuted under our criminal justice laws. They are referred for delinquency offenses, meaning something that would be criminal if an adult did it, but because it's a child, we are actually not going to put them into the criminal court. We're going to have a special juvenile justice division that aims to not establish guilt or innocence, but establish true It's true the child committed the violation or not true. And the system then is ostensibly at least, I say ostensibly as a former legal aid lawyer who worked with kids, but it's ostensibly designed to be rehabilitative rather than punitive. And this recognition built into our justice system reflects something that I think we all understand from kind of a common sense lived experience, which is that kids and teens don't yet have the executive functioning, the grasp of their sense of self, the understanding of the world, to make the same determinations about cause and effect or even right or wrong that adults can make. And when I say adults, I'm not just talking 18 plus. I'm, I, I teach um, a lot of 20-year-olds, and they are all amazing. But I do think when we're talking about maturity, maybe like 25 and over is probably, probably good. Um, but we recognize that kids and teens, and I'm going to even say young adults, they're still learning. They're going to make mischief. They're going to make mistakes. And ideally, they're going to grow up better for having made them. But in the always connected digital spaces, we unfortunately are setting up a situation where, in some cases, before our kids are even conceived, if we're using a fertility tracking app or a fertility bracelet, or right after conception, we're posting an ultrasound picture, we are creating digital trails where there's a lot of data that reflects a lot of things that our kids are going to do that 
won't really be forgotten. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think that there's some Wizard of Oz behind a curtain somewhere that is amassing every single point of digital data that exists in the world about any child or any individual. I'm not saying that at all. Well, you're giving me an eyebrow. Maybe you can tell me later that there is. But I think that there are, there is at this point such a strong push in the tech products that are out there and in the ones that are being developed that data aggregation is the norm. That's the gold rush that we're in. And parents, grandparents, and other adults are putting so much out there that we're really just not in a position to know either where it's going or how it will be used. And we're not in a position to know how it is going to impact our kids' felt experience of their childhood and adolescence. And that will look different for different kids at different times. So the infant probably isn't going to realize that you're taking a picture and putting it on Facebook. But the eight-year-old might realize when they look at your social media page. The 12-year-old might realize that you kept a parenting blog when they start middle school. And, and this is something that was actually reported to me. Names are not be given to protect the innocent and the guilty. But true story of a parent blogger whose child started middle school and found old-fashioned hard copy printouts of something from the parent's blog put up on all the lockers. Um, when the child started middle school. And it was the kind of post that I think we would recognize as parents or adults was meant to be constructive or cute or sort of connect with other grown-ups, but to the child was humiliating. And so those are the kinds of experiences that really do impact and limit children's ability to play, either in the moment, either they realize, like, wait a second, are you taking a picture of this? Or maybe it's not in the moment, but maybe three, four, five years later, they realize, oh my gosh, people know about this. And, you know, we all know from having been middle schoolers and high school students that there's a stage of life where everything is embarrassing to you. Like the fact of your own existence is embarrassing to you. The fact that your parents exist is embarrassing to you. We're not going to get around that. But we do need to be thinking about, as adults, for those of us who remember the pre-digital era, or if you're younger and don't didn't grow up in it, you can at least do a thought experiment of, would I have found this creepy and weird if my parents, back in the 1990s, 1980s, whenever, had taken out an ad in the local newspaper or gotten up you know, in the Bema and synagogue and said, my child stopped wetting the bed. My daughter just got her period. My son's having really bad temper tantrums. My baby won't sleep through the night. Attention, everybody. We might have found that a little strange. I would have found it really weird if my parents had taken out an ad in the local newspaper to say that I was getting into fights with my younger brother, who totally deserved it, I thought at the time. Um, so, But that's the kind of stuff we routinely say. And we say it in a way that actually has more staying power than the local newspaper, which would have wound up in the not even recycling bin back then, trash bin. And I'm not persuaded, we can talk about during q and I'm not persuaded by the comeback I sometimes get of, well, the norm is changing for everyone, so why does it matter? Well, it's going to matter to that child, you know, in that moment when that comes out. And as we think about not just the individual children that we know and love, but we think about actually how we as grown-ups understand the life stage of childhood and the life stage of adolescence as we move into thinking about it as something that should be photographed, that should be tracked, that should be monitored, that should be surveilled. We are going to start changing our expectations of our kids and of our teenagers in a way that I think threatens their ability to have private spaces. And I don't necessarily just mean like in their room door closed. I mean time with their friends, time when grownups aren't watching, time when they're going to do something really dumb and then people will forget about it. Or maybe their parents will remember, their friends will remember, but the world 
won't have a way of remembering or knowing about it. And especially when it comes to surveillance technologies that we're using on our kids, both at school and at home, we're using more and more of them. We just saw a report in the New York Times within the last month that the first school district in New York State to introduce facial surveillance technology has done that. We know that even before the uh, school district in New York did that, that there are many other forms of surveillance products, including one called Gaggle, which monitors, this is according to Education Weekly, it monitors digital content created by nearly 5 million U.S. K-12 students, all files, messages, class assignments on school devices and accounts. And machine learning algorithms automatically scan the information looking to see if something bad is about to happen. That's a direct quote from Education Weekly. And you know we're doing it in our homes as well. We are putting the you know watch on the child that is also a location tracker. The Washington Post recently ran a series of stories about an app called the Life 360 app where it goes on the college student's phone or the high school student's phone and essentially exists to provide, you know, updates to their parents about where they are and what they're doing. Um, and then apparently a bunch of kids started pushing back on it and um, creating, I think, a series of Reddit posts for how to disable the Life360 app. And so those are just a handful of examples of the ways in which we're transforming this idea of childhood and adolescence as protected spaces to play. From a legal perspective, really the parent gets to choose when it's being done in the home. Even if you are putting a fitness tracker or location tracking device on a child who's under 13, where it would be covered by COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, as a parent, all you have to do is consent to that. It's a little different for schools. Schools, when they are transmitting children's private information outside of the school, and that includes through a digital device, under the Federal Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, or FERPA, if there's personally identifiable information in that, the school either needs parental consent or more likely they're going to be relying on an exception to the parental consent requirement that is called the legitimate school official exception. It allows them as a school, and I'm talking schools that receive uh, federal funding, which most do, it allows them as a school to say, we're going to share this PII, personally identifiable information, because we're sharing it with a provider that is doing something that otherwise would be done in-house that is under our control and is not resharing the information. If all of those things are actually happening, that actually can be more privacy protecting for kids in a school environment than in a home because if you actually are making sure you have a binding contract with that tech provider to keep the information with that provider and not reshare it, that's actually a lot better than most of us are able to do in our home as parents. And I have seen some school district where that absolutely happens, where there are multi-stakeholder teams of lawyers, technologists, teachers, administrators, and they really do lock it down. But that isn't the norm um, through no fault of the schools. A lot of schools are under-resourced in terms of money, in terms of knowledge, and in terms of understanding that privacy is an issue. So again, thinking about the ways in which we're eroding spaces to play. So I'm now going to make a little bit of a prediction about where we're going. We'll see if... Um, I'm correct, 10 or 15 years from now, or maybe sooner. So this is, this is from the book. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Thought experiment, because law professors love thought experiments. A near-future hypothetical scenario. In this near-future hypothetical scenario, you're helping your 17-year-old daughter finish her college applications. The college applications require her SAT score, SAT2 scores, AP scores, and Tykebytes personal capital scores. What the heck is Tykebytes? Siri tells you that Tykebytes serves as your child's passport from her past into her future. You ask Siri to stop reading the Tykebytes soundbites and do some digging. The response, 
Typebytes is a commercial database that serves as a repository of childhood data and a clearinghouse into adulthood. Typebytes aggregates as much data about each child in the country as possible and then packages the data for purchase by different types of institutions and individuals. The most popular product is a set of scores that rates children's likelihood of future success in a range of areas, including education, athletics, and employment. Typebytes will share these personal capital scores with any individual or institution that pays for them, isn't legally prohibited from having them, and demonstrates what is, in Typebytes' opinion, a legitimate need for them. You and your daughter don't need to do anything to have these scores sent. All colleges that receive applications from her will request and receive these scores from Typebytes at no cost to individual applicants. Tykebytes does allow parents and youth age 18 or over to opt out of having Tykebytes collect and share their information. But the Tykebytes website warns you that opting out risks your child's future. After all, the perky chatbot in the click here for help section tells you, an applicant without Tykebytes scores is like a car without airbags. You could take it for a spin, but why bother? So at least last time I checked, there wasn't this kind of comprehensive Tykebytes product, but you know, things can change within a matter of hours. But there are plenty of things that are getting us close to that. There is a robust and lightly regulated industry of data brokers that sort of functions as a, I will say, shadowy um, you know, partner to the credit reporting industry that is there to aggregate you know, large amounts of personal information package it, and resell it. A recent study from the Center on Law and Information Policy CLIP at Fordham Law School looked specifically at data brokers that have information about students, minors, and it found that there was information in there about kids as young as two. They found lists that included homeschool-oriented Christian families Jewish households with children nearing high school graduation and rich kids of America. They found lists or selects a subset of a list of 14 and 15-year-old girls in need of family planning services. In their survey, the American Red Cross responded that the American Red Cross had reached out to students as very specific types of potential blood donors based on information they had acquired from data brokers that started to get into ethnicity, age, and a bunch of other really intimate factors. And CLIP was not able to determine with certainty where these data brokers were getting this information from. Their best understanding was that it was not somebody in a school office, you know, bulk transferring large amounts of sensitive information, but it was coming in sideways. It was a teacher filling out a survey, a student filling out a survey, a parent filling out a survey, or other interactions with websites and other digital technologies that were acquiring information that was then being aggregated and sold. And so when we think about the current reality, Kathy Neal's book, wonderful book called Weapons of Math Destruction, talks about how already there is a sort of predictive hiring industry where 60 to 70 percent of applicants who are American adults in this country are taking web-based sort of employment fitness tests. Are you going to be the right person for this job? It, It is not a stretch to think, gosh, what is that test going to look like? two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, where the conceived digital generation comes of age and we can put together the profile of information about what kids have been doing really their whole lives in a sort of credit report style summary and plug that in to the employment fitness test that they're taking. In some ways, amazing predictive power if you do it right. In other ways, how chilling to think that a rant that was made about you, you know, by a parent or other adult or data from the smart diaper that suggests you took too long to potty train can and I think probably will be aggregated and used against you if not overtly, at least against you in a way where 
your agency, your autonomy as you grow up and come of age is going to be compromised or very much threatened. So when we're thinking about the ways in which we are already using data in predictive ways to determine if a child will be a good fit at a college. I work in higher ed. There are a whole bunch of products out there right now that we're already using to think about making a match. When we think about the fact that more and more of this information is being put out there without legal limits on meaningful legal limits on parents, grandparents, or other adults close to kids. Again, teachers would be a little bit different because you do have federal and state laws in place. There's a lot of data out there that is going to drive whatever the next version of who would have imagined that pictures of kids would drive bleeding-edge surveillance technology. So what is our path forward? It's complicated, to quote to quote Facebook and, and many others. I think that it is a multi-stakeholder solution space. I don't think that any one of us acting alone can make a significant dent. I do think that there is space for all of us in our individual capacities to start reflecting a little bit more about the values that we bring to bear when we make digital choices. Larry Lessig, who wrote one of the foundational works on internet law, talked about code and other sources of law. And it's an amazing read for people who like recent history. He wrote it just about 20 years ago. And everything he says in it theoretically remains only more true, but he's using examples of technologies that at the time were really cutting edge, like AOL chat and Pine and all these things that now you read them, you're like, oh, I forgot about Second Life. That was so cute. But pick it up. And Professor Lessig is talking about how when it comes to how you regulate what he was calling the internet, what we would now say digital space, the law is only going to get you so far. And actually so much in this space is established by norms and customs or code, the way that products are actually designed. And so when we think about the norms and customs and values we have in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our communities. There is a lot of room for all of us individually and in conversation to try to have the moment that, you know, has already happened when it's come to things like wearing seatbelts or not smoking or certainly not smoking in front of your children. You know, these habits that were pretty deeply ingrained and pretty widespread, like, oh, the baby can just, you know, sit in the bassinet in the back not strapped in. No, that's a terrible idea. And so, yes, we do have laws now to back that up, but there's always a chicken and egg aspect to these things. And so I would really encourage all of us to just stop and think, if we value protected spaces to play, if we value this idea that to find your future self you have to be able to forget or at least have other people forget about your previous selves. If you value connection that is based in shared experience rather than, you know, everyone on their own device, you know, sending pictures back and forth, just think about whether there are ways that you can transform some of your daily habits and the habits of people around you. Honestly, I think even things that seem as small as, Asking another parent before a play date, hey, you know, do you post pictures of your kids? If you do, that's cool, but I don't actually post pictures of mine, so do you mind not putting my kids in if you do? It feels weird to say, but if we all start saying that to each other, then it normalizes this idea that sharenting doesn't have to be a default setting. So I think there's room for just sort of a common sense values-based reorientation. That's not going to get us all the way there. There's a huge need for common sense privacy law reform at the federal level. We've seen California very recently, just uh, last month, January 2020, a new California Consumer Privacy Act went into effect that does more to give kids some sort of backstop against sharenting than any other legal scheme so far. And California 
and Washington State and many other places that are tech hubs can help drive the country, but it really does need to be uniform. And I think that there's room for taking a page out of California's book. And one of the things about the California invention that's so nice is that it has said that there is a prohibition on the sale of personal information about a child under 17 unless there is a specific opt-in to that sale by the parents if the child is under 13 or interestingly, by the child themselves, if they're between 13 and 16. And the California law has some limits. It applies to tech companies um, that are quite big in size. Of course, they have to do business in California. And then there are a number of things that really means that we're talking very large scale. But it it's a really meaningful start. And so when I think about the need for law reform, I'm not talking about a law that comes in and tries to regulate what parents or grandparents are doing on their phones. I don't think that there would be um, a lot of support for something like that. I think constitutionally and also just ethically, even putting the Constitution aside, you know, I get nervous when we invite government local, state, or federal, in to micromanage what we do in our houses. But I do think that there's a lot of room to come in and say, you know what, parents, grandparents, and even teachers, you know, we'd like to have this sort of shared reimagining and revisioning of our default setting. But even if you guys can't do that, we are actually going to place federal legal limits on what can be done with shared information. And so one of the things that where I think the law really has the most power to regulate is to say, information is going to get out there. But as a matter of federal law, we are going to say that, and you can define it, I think, more broadly than California, that tech companies and other institutions cannot use personal information about a minor to make major life gatekeeping decisions. So education, employment, insurance, and so on, unless there's a separate legal basis that allows for it, or unless there has been very specific affirmative opt-in consent by the parents or by the child if they're over a certain age, and that I think the child should then be able to revoke even what the parents did once they become an adult. So this is a way of trying to have a little bit of a backstop on, you know what, we're really not going to be able to stop mom and dad using the heavy hand of the law from putting up those cute baby pictures of you in the bathtub um, unless they really cross the line. But we are going to be able to say if whatever enterprising tech company has figured out when you're applying to college how to extract data from you know, how clean you were as an infant to extrapolate if you're likely to succeed in school, that you can then come in and not only have a right to transparency to see that that's happening, but to actually block it. And there are a number of other ways you could do law reform as well. So with that... Um, I will open it up for questions, reflections, challenges. What do people think? Are the robots coming for us? How soon are they coming? Will they be friendly? I love what you said about, I think the thing that stuck with me the most I, um, is pausing in the moment to even think about if this is, if I need to take a picture of this. Thing. Yeah. Not, because that's where I am right now. I'm an 18 month old, so we are not 18 and college Yeah. You know, college applications and things. But I very, as an early child educator, very much value play. And I've certainly noticed just in the last month or two that if I pull out the camera from my phone, yeah. it stops and looks at me, you know? Yeah. So I've kind of been thinking about that just in general, but what you're saying is really helpful just in terms of making it concrete. Like, this something that has yeah. to disrupt what she is it worth disrupting the investigative play that she's doing mm-hmm. just so that I can show my husband what she did at 10 a.m. Like I can also just tell him about that or you know. But do you have any strategies for kind of I mean that in and of itself? Like do you have any thoughts around how to just kind of like stop yourself or think about it? Um, but then also just kind of how to expand that because 
But the other, the thing that I'm struggling against is that the pictures I have of myself as a child are all in these, you know, precious photo albums in my parents' house, and they're huge and heavy, and yeah. I have no interest in like laying them out on our table. Or my mom's always trying to send them home. <laughs> Um, and they're of like your birthday, right. the vacation, this right. special thing. Whereas actually, I really value the like cute or everyday or mundane things that are happening. And yeah. so that's actually my intention in capturing them. I don't know. So I'm just trying to find a balance between like not only having pictures of birthdays, but right. also not having a picture every 10 seconds that's going to disrupt your play. You know? I'm right there with you. And I think that, you know, I have a couple of reflections. The first is that I find it really useful and I definitely do not always practice what I preach at all at all at all but I do actually try to ask myself that question of you know is this something that I really feel I want or need or is it just the habit because that is the thing that I feel and this is where sort of the privacy meets the design I feel like there is such an addictive sort of habit-based response that we all have now and like that kind of like slightly tingly itchy feeling like oh it's there where is it I should do something with it and so I do just try to take a like a quick breath almost of am I reaching for this because it's that kind of tingly almost equivalent of like I need another cup of coffee I'm not cutting back on coffee because I couldn't do that Um, but I think if you feel like if you feel yourself kind of reaching for it for that, then maybe that is a a signal of, oh, maybe I don't so much need this moment, but I'm feeling like I need the device. And I hear you on the challenge, though, of how you make memories. Uh, my husband, one of, one of the things we have debated a lot since I wrote this book is, you know, well, will our children or any children um, be mad at us down the line if we don't have enough Memories, and he has pointed out, you know, how much he and I both love finding, like even like little scraps of paper. You know, I have a little like note that I carry in the inside pocket of my purse that my grandmother wrote me when I was five, and you know, she's passed away a while ago. But I love that, and so I think that we do want to not lose track of those moments and of those memories, but just being mindful about who the audience is. And if that audience is really going to be, you know, our family and our kids in the future and their kids in the future, does it also need to be out there on a blog or even on a Facebook page that's set to private? Because the privacy settings don't really do much. Something can always be downloaded or screenshotted and reshared. And they don't do anything to what might be happening behind the scenes. So just being mindful and intentional of, you know what, I'm just going to make sure that I have, you can set a number, like 10 pictures a week, and I'm going to make sure that I'm putting together not a big heavy album, but like a very light lift, you know, kind of paperback album um, so that those moments are being captured. Because I think one of the things that's challenging about photos is that it is a pain in the neck to print out those albums, and I'm really behind on it. I now have two kids, and like I was doing pretty well with one, and now that I have two, like it's just it's bad. Fortunately, my parents still print them for me. Um, but almost if you don't print them out and get them in hard copy, the tech can become obsolete really quickly, and you can forget like was that on Shutterfly or you know was that on whatever, you know, iPhoto. And so I think there is some value in going back to the idea of putting together an album, not that it has to be all birthday parties, but that you're preserving it for a specific audience rather than putting it broadly into the world. I don't know if that helps at all, but yeah, these are very much the things that um, I'm just trying to figure out my own life as well. What else? Yeah. Um, Do you have any thoughts about the the genealogy collection. Yeah. That seems to be really popular. popular yes, the 23 and Me. Yeah. Like that. I do. The crossover that those have into the criminal justice system in particular really freaks me out. And 23 and Me and, and, and ones like it 
are an example of how not just sharenting, but the intra-family privacy breaches that can happen. I was out uh, having coffee with a friend recently, and he stepped away to take a phone call from his brother. And he came back to the table. He's like, that was weird. I was like, okay. He's like, my brother just called me unprompted to make me promise never to do 23andMe. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. And he's like, I don't know what made him think about it. I was like, well, I need to make sure I call my brothers. And and so here's sort of the two big things that I find creepy about it. One is that you really, whether you're a child or an adult, if someone else in your family is doing that, your information is getting, you know, analyzed and aggregated by the company. And I do find it, and it's almost a little bit like being back in our kids, in our childhood shoes where our parents make decisions that we don't have much control over, except here we can be an adult. And guess what? If my friend had wanted to say to his brother, you know, no thanks, I'm definitely doing 23andMe, there's nothing his brother could do about it. He's not going to go to court and get an injunction. The court's not going to issue one. It's a lawful thing to do. The next thing I find creepy about it is the way it enables law enforcement to do an end run around traditional long-standing forms of process and protection that we all have when the justice system wants to move against us. And so when you have whether it is 23andMe or a different tech company saying, hey, we're going to voluntarily and sometimes proactively and preemptively cooperate with law enforcement by opening up the materials we have, well, then it means that we're not getting warrants, we're not issuing subpoenas, we're not having that additional layer of process. There's a company um, called Leads Online, and they do a couple of things. One of the things they do is they offer a service to pawn shops. And this is in, in most states, in order to operate a pawn shop, either local ordinance or state law will require the pawn shop to keep very detailed records of transactions. And it makes sense because they want to make sure that people aren't stealing things and then pawning them. And so Leads Online sells a service that gets adopted by a city or um, at a slightly bigger government level. And then the cost typically, typically gets passed through to the pawn shop owners. And so instead of having these kind of dusty old books where they chronicle, you know, Patty came in with a teapot or Steve came in with a silver necklace, it's, it goes into a cloud-based um, a cloud-based product that law enforcement can then log in and look and see what the transactions are in their community. So there are a lot of values in terms of efficiency and access to information. Um, But one of the things that happened with this, I was reading a, a newspaper report, the CEO of this company at one point opened up access to these records and similar records that the company had for a law enforcement officer in a jurisdiction that had not paid for the subscription because the CEO wanted to be helpful and that officer was trying to solve a case. And it did actually help the officer solve a case. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the case didn't have anything to do with pawn shop items. It had to do with something else entirely, but they were trying to figure out who this person was. And it's a different permutation of this longstanding struggle in our justice system between efficiency and access to information. You know, we could have cameras every five feet and you could automatically, you know, be given a ticket if you jaywalked and we could have heightened near, you know, not perfect, but closer to perfect tracking and enforcement of violations if we had more surveillance and fewer constitutional protections. Of course, in, the, in this country, we tip a bit more toward the better that, an, you know, a guilty person go free than one innocent person get, get caught up in the system. But as you have increasing concentrations of DNA information or pawn-shop information or other information that's really valuable to folks in the criminal justice system and you have private companies really making the decisions about what kind of gatekeepers they want to be, that starts to look very different. So, yes, I would say um, those, those types of products have 
a lot of negative impact sometimes within families and then as we think about personal liberty. What else? Yeah. Uh, Leah, you mentioned some um, new rights, uh, remedies as well, perhaps being created by this California law and others like it uh, that allow you to uh, strict or they have a strict opt-in on uh, the sharing of data about yeah. a particular child. I wonder if you've given any thought to uh, the inherent uh, trade-off that comes with um, sort of claiming a data, claiming some piece of data, as adhering to an actual child that you are the parent of. Because that then you have you have just uh, given more information. You've given a certainty of identity. This actually is about little Johnny, who actually is five years old. Yeah. Uh, and so you've kind of given the bad guys more info. It's really tough. I have thought about it, and I don't have a good solution for it. Because right now, we do have a setup, and we're already seeing it, even in states other than California, where you are being asked in the name of data privacy protection often to give out more data. So we were talking earlier about really big, wide-scale data breaches, um, you know, Anthem or, or some of these other big companies. And so after these data breaches, the companies or um, the institutions, it can be a nonprofit as well, will typically give access to credit monitoring. And I've seen this in news reports, and I also actually also had it happen to me with, with my son. So we were in the Anthem data breach, and they offered us free you know, credit monitoring and identity monitoring. And I thought, okay, you know, why not? It's, I'm a former consumer rights lawyer. I should see what's happening. So signed us all up for it, including our kids. And I got a notification a few months after it happened that there was some suspicious activity tied to my son's identity, to his social security number. So I called the credit monitoring service and I said, um, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about this? And they said, well, first you need to prove that you're your son's parent. And I said, but I signed him up. And they said, yeah, but in order for us to tell you what is going on that we flagged, we need you to prove it. And I said, and how would you need me to prove it? And they wanted a copy of like birth certificate. And I was like, at this point, I was like, well, this is just, you know, like forget which came first, the chicken or the egg. Now we're just breaking all the eggs and making a huge messy omelet. So actually wound up not doing it and trying to figure out the information in other ways. Because you're absolutely right that it then becomes, you know, this this arms race almost, where in the name of privacy, you're being asked to give more away. And it's like, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to scan a birth certificate and transmit it to you through some website that I have no reason to trust, you know, to prove something you should already know anyway. And so I think one of the things that I've thought about, so if, if I got to draft the new federal law, um, you know, one of the things that I think you would be needing to do would be to create a really robust set of enforcement mechanisms for violation of the law so that it can be hard to really take on faith that, you know, if you give the bad guys more information, that that won't then actually, through some loophole, be used even more against your child. I think that we would need to have what we don't currently have when it comes to the big tech companies, um, meaningful penalties that you would need to be able to let be enforced by individual litigants and private attorneys with a fee-shifting statute. So you basically create you know, a nation of private attorneys general who could do enough damage through litigation to really try to make the companies behave. But I, I welcome other suggestions because I'm not completely satisfied with that, but it's one of the things that's been on my mind about it. Just about that time. Okay. So then, unless someone has a really pressing Up in the morning, yawning, cups 
watch and wait to kick the dough in Cause they know I got them dope pins and the dope ends So my enemies got no friends, yeah, it don't end I wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watch and wait to kick the dough in Cause they know I got them dope pins and the dope ends So my enemies got no friends, yeah, it don't end uh, You come to my hood and tell me how to live I think I'm good, that's not how it is how it works, so hours I work on my craft like I'm leaving the earth, like trees in the earth getting deep in the dirt, not for reason I search, that's for the birds like the season that trips, you see yeah. at first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then well, you're the only reason I hurt, at first you're the only thing I need on this earth, then well, the only reason I hurt maybe, baby, that's just how I twist it but I know you got a hit list of misters who diss it, so now I can't have your big lips just wanna love you for real though but when you come to work you wear your still toes so you can't feel, no access to your seal so and so I gotta pay the bill though and get fed, barely have the meal slow girl, yeah love is all I'm really here for, wake up in the morning yawning, cops watching, wake to kick the dope in, cause I know I got them dope pins and it don't end so my enemies got no friends, yeah, it don't end up in the morning, yawning, cops watching, wait to kick the dope in, cause they know I got them dope pens and the dope ends, so my enemies got no friends, yeah, it don't end, uh, see, me, I always been a thinker, see, you telling me we gon' sink, uh, don't compute in my brain, I don't just shoot, I'm careful of my aim, and I'll be shooting to you, care for the same, on the same tree like some pairs, I'm just saying, we all have prayers for the same, already there is the plan, cop you a ticket, have you a visit to where bliss is, first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then, but you're the only reason I hurt. First, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then You're the only reason I hurt Ralph Rain Yeah, 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 it's Ralph Rain